Damien Carrick here. Welcome to the first new Law Report for 2023. Although COVID restrictions might be behind us, the remote witnessing of wills looks set to stay. But as you'll hear shortly, you've got to do it right. One of the most significant legal developments to watch in 2023 will be the complete detonation of the Federal Administrative Appeals Tribunal, known as the AAT. Look, it's interesting that you say detonate. I wouldn't use those words because I think the AAT was in the process of self-destruction anyway. I think all the government has really done is say, look, I know a train wreck when I see one, so let's just finish this off. I think the meltdown of the AAT was already happening and I think um, the current Attorney-General has just sort of seen reality and decided to make things quicker rather than drawn out. I'd call it a mercy killing. Deakin University Professor Matthew Groves, he's a leading expert in administrative law. In mid-December, Federal Attorney-General Mark Dreyfus announced the dismantling, the nuking of the AAT because it was, quote, fatally compromised by what the Attorney-General described as the disgraceful cronyism of the previous government in appointing tribunal members. So what is the AAT and how important is it? Well, the AAT is a special tribunal and it operates at the federal level and it reviews decisions of just about every area you can think of, tax, social security, migration, all sorts of bits and pieces. And the one really important aspect of the AAT is that it doesn't just review decisions, it can make a new decision. So whatever a bureaucrat has decided, the AAT can overturn and make its own decision. And the courts can't do that. It's only the AAT. It's the appeal avenue for all sorts of decisions made under Commonwealth law, including, as you Centrelink, child support, migration and refugee status, as you said, taxation, also freedom of information, veterans' entitlements, uh, workers' compensation and the NDIS. So it's a huge system, isn't it? Yeah, look, it's got a really broad jurisdiction and it hears reviews under about 400 statutes, so it's really broad. And if you don't know about the AAT, you might know about the cat empire that people talk about about civil and administrative tribunals. Every state in Australia has its own cat and the AAT is essentially the federal cat and you might call it the super cat because it's the biggest jurisdiction that hears the most cases and it's the largest tribunal in the country. And each year it hears thousands of cases. I've seen some figures saying it hears 40,000 cases a year and there is now a, a huge backlog. I read somewhere that there was a backlog of around 67,000 cases. Yeah, look, those figures are accurate and they're an insight into how big the AAT's work is, but a backlog of 67,000 and counting gives an indication that it's got a waiting list worse than any hospital that we know of. So if you're facing a deportation decision and you're in a long queue of cases to sit around and wait 18 months or up to two years for a decision on whether or not you should be deported, that's a really serious thing. Now, in a lot of other instances like Centrelink, should my debt be waived? For people facing a Centrelink issue to wait a year, 18 months to have that case determined, it means they have to put their entire life on hold. So what is the federal government's rationale for dismantling the entire AAT? On what information did it base that decision? Well, the principal thing that seems to be driving these reforms is the 
appointment process used by the last Liberal government, where over the last three or four years of that government, they just appointed more and more friends of the Liberal Party, former MPs, political advisers. And uh, the figures are about 75 to 85 members who didn't seem really competent or capable to sit on the AAT. But whoops, there you go. All of a sudden, they're on a full-time tribunal job. And there are so many of these appointments that eventually there was a, a lot of people thought there's a perception that the AAT has, well, I heard one barrister refer to it as the Liberal car park, where essentially the main criteria to get appointed was membership or association with the Liberal Party. Now, people might argue about that, but the perception was repeated by so many people that it led to a Senate inquiry under the previous government and, and the majority report recommended... Yeah, ALP majority report. Yeah, the ALP majority. They just recommended that we wipe the slate clean and start all over again. And in terms of the, I feel like the calculations of the research done around the background of, of appointees, that was done by the Grattan Institute, I believe. Yeah. What they did was track the number of appointments and the association of those people with the government of the day. And what they found was that over the last 30 or 40 years, there'd always been one or two appointments each year of people associated with government, which is maybe not surprising in a body that reviews government decisions. But what the Grattan Institute found was that the number of people appointed who had connections to the government, it just went through the roof under the last government. And how well do you think the AAT has been performing in recent years? And to what extent would you say you think that there are poor outcomes that can be connected to the calibre of the tribunal members? The numbers speak for themselves. So the backlog alone is bad news. But there are also other indicators. When the Senate inquired into the AAT, a couple of AAT officials appeared before the Senate over the last several months and they didn't really seem to know what was happening in their own tribunal. So even in those public hearings, they couldn't often answer basic questions. So it created an impression that the management was struggling to keep on top of the caseload. And everything I hear from lawyers suggests that backlog is a really, really big issue and it's only getting worse. So what's going to happen now? Um, what's the process? Uh, I understand uh, the same day that the Attorney-General announced the dismantling of the AAT, he also announced the government would appoint 75 interim members to help uh, get through this backlog. Uh, have those positions been advertised? Uh, look, not that I know of, but I think the advertising is very imminent. And the main thing to note about this rash of appointments is that it hasn't come out of the blue. Under the previous government, it was clear that the AAT was understaffed and for reasons that aren't clear, they didn't fill all the positions that they could have. So what should happen in the next month or two is that ads will come out and the AAT will get the extra members that everybody thinks it needs. And I think the Attorney General's also released guidelines about what that appointment process will look like just for the 75 interim members. And that, that's new and quite different, isn't it? Yeah, look, that's actually an important advance in the way the AAT works. The previous Labor government had introduced a policy for appointments, but then the Abbott government abolished it and they just had a closed door. You didn't know what was going on. The current attorney has released a document. It's only three pages long, but it's three pages more than we had. And it contains shocking details such as statements like it will be a merit-based appointment. We will advertise publicly. We will have an independent committee that looks at this and they will make recommendations. Now, these are all 
bread and butter things, but it's the first time in over a decade we've had them put in writing and released to the public. So we have these 75 interim members who will be, their positions will be advertised shortly and they'll be appointed fairly quickly. What are the next steps then in terms of the replacement of the AAT? Well, that's the big question that nobody's really sure about. The attorney has announced that Patrick Keane, who's a recently retired High Court judge, will conduct a review to decide what kind of body should replace the AAT. And nothing has come out about that process. All we know is that there's a High Court judge in charge of it. And that follows the Australian tradition that if you've got a problem, call in a retired High Court judge. And you might remember Justice Virginia Bell looked at Scott Morrison's secret ministries. We don't know what Justice Keane will come up with. All we know is that he's been given a brief, here's the problem, tell us what might happen. My own gut feeling is that he's going to ask some basic questions like, should I just recommend we replicate the AAT or should we come up with something completely different, whereas instead of one big tribunal, maybe we have a couple of tribunals. For instance, I know migration and refugee status form a big part of the work of the current AAT, maybe having a separate process for those kinds of cases. Is that what you're suggesting? Look, I think that's probably going to be one of the things he'll think about. And and for people who don't know the area, a migration is a huge source of business in tribunals. And I always used to tell my students the AAT was like a python. And when the migration tribunals got folded into it, the python ate a huge pig. And it never really got to digest the pig because all you could see is this big lump that blocked everything. I think a lot of people feel migration is so complex and specialised, we should have an AAT to do general stuff and a separate big migration tribunal. The government is, well, I'm using the term demolishing the AAT. Have there been any precedents for the demolition of a court or a tribunal system in Australia? Look, there have been, but they're all kind of spotty examples. Over 30 years ago, New South Wales abolished its local court and replaced it with with essentially an equivalent court. So they remade their local court. But essentially what they did was abolish and reconstitute a tribunal. And that was a really messy process that ended up in the High Court. The states have undertaken an equivalent process when they created their CATS, which I mentioned earlier, their civil and administrative tribunals. When the states each developed a cat, what they did was abolish a whole range of specialist tribunals. Uh, A lot of people say they folded them into the new cat, but in fact what they did was abolish dozens, sometimes hundreds of tribunals into one. So what happened in those past cases to the magistrates or the tribunal members when they were, in effect, terminated? Can governments do that? Because that's what they're going to be doing to many, many members of the AAT this time around, presumably. Can they do that? Yes, they can. As with all things in politics, you never start out on a process unless you know the answer. And the answer in this case is that AAT members don't have to be reappointed to the new tribunal. What the attorney has said is quite interesting. He's he's said 
every existing member on the tribunal is free to apply for a new position in whatever replaces the AAT. But there's probably a little asterisk on that, because what we've got to remember is that the attorney himself has criticised the appointment of a lot of people who are on the tribunal. So he said, on the one hand, everybody's welcome, my door is open. But remember, he said in the past, I don't like a lot of the appointments that have been made. Join those dots. What do you make of the criticisms of the Liberal Party? Shadow Attorney General Julian Lisa criticised the government for making the decision so close to the end of the year. He said it wants to avoid scrutiny and wants to stack the new body itself. And he said, quote, the government's decision to purge is all about making the Labor government less accountable. Quote, this government is all about settling political scores. This announcement undermines the work of the tribunal in holding this Labor government to account. Well, I'm always a little sceptical when politicians accuse people of playing politics because I think you're a politician. Of course you make political decisions. I think in this instance it's hard to accept that the current government is evading scrutiny because they've been very open about what they're doing and the attorney's published a lot of transparent guidelines. So he's said in advance at each stage what he's going to do and why he's going to do it. And I think that contrasts with the previous government which often made these decisions in secret and without notice. Finally, Matthew Groves, what should we be looking at closely as this process unfolds? Well, I think there are a couple of things. The first thing is who is going to head any new tribunal? At the moment, the AAT has an acting president, a very distinguished judge of the federal court, but it's almost certain that a new body will have a new president. Who will that be? Um, nobody knows, but all us lawyers have our ears close to the ground and everybody's preening their CV, not me, of course. I think the other thing that we need to keep an eye on is all of these crony appointments that people have complained about what is going to happen to them. I think there's a watch list that a lot of lawyers are maintaining and we'll need to keep an eye on that. And of course, the other thing is the Liberal Party is not the only political party with friends and former MPs. A lot of people will be looking to see if Mark Dreyfus has his Christmas card list out. Is the current Attorney General going to do the things that he complains the previous government did? You never know with politicians, do you? Watch this space. Uh, Deakin University Professor Matthew Groves, leading expert in administrative law. Thank you for speaking to The Law Report. Thanks for having me. You might think that all children should be able to at least make a claim on the estate of their biological parents. Well, a recent New South Wales case looked at this question and you might be surprised by the answer. Jared Basher, a partner with Bartia Perry, is an accredited expert in the law of wills and estates. Jared Basher, tell me about the recent decision of Daly and Donaldson. Who is Glenn Daly? He was born in 1961. The applicant. Glenn Daly was the biological son of the deceased, but uh, just shortly after birth, he was adopted with the consent of the deceased by the new husband of his mother, Mr. Daly. And what happened after his biological father's death is that he wanted to 
challenge his biological father's will on the basis that he was an eligible person and there was no provision for him in the will. So he's the biological son of this uh, testator, uh, John Bernard Richardson. There's no allocation to him in the will of of John Bernard Richardson. Now, who is the executrix of this will? Because uh, John Bernard Richardson actually did have other children. Yes, yes. The executrix is Lenny's sister. But his sister Dawn was in a different position because she was not only named as executrix in her father's will, her biological father's will, but she was also named as a major beneficiary. So she was basically defending the will and effectively defending her entitlement. After the relationship between Glenn's mum, Jeanette, and the testator, John, had ended, Jeanette had married uh, Mr Keith Daly and she'd moved to Queensland and I think she'd taken Glenn and maybe one of his siblings with her. Dawn continued to live in New South Wales with her grandparents and continued to have a relationship with her father and it would appear that Keith Daly had adopted Glenn. We don't really know about Dawn but he certainly had adopted Glenn, the stepfather. So what happens after John Bernard Richardson passes away? He's got an estate of about a million dollars and Glenn wants part of it. A share of the estate. So he, he makes a legal challenge to the will to see if he can get part of his father's estate. And essentially the, those legal proceedings between him and his sister, who's named as executrix in the last will, are settled. So they've agreed that he will get a certain amount from the estate. Just prior to the matter going to the court, his sister Dawn became aware that that Glenn was adopted and that effectively meant that he was not within the category of eligible person entitled to make a family provision challenge to his uh, biological father's estate because effectively he ceases to be a child of the biological father and becomes a child of the adopted father. So adoption is quite a draconian step. You're cutting off all the responsibilities and rights of parenting, even though the adoption decision is made for the children. They have no input into it. But what options they have down the track are really curtailed by adoption. Well, not not necessarily. I think that the law looks on it as the adopted child has the legal rights in respect of the new adopted parent. But the adopted child's legal rights sees in respect of the birth parent or the biological parent. So in a way, the rule and the legislation prevents people, you know, having a claim on different estates, you know, double dipping, so to speak. I guess that's kind of the logic, you know, you've got to have sort of legal clarity. Do we know the status of Dawn, the executrix of the will and the beneficiary of the will? Was she? We don't know from the decision whether or not she was adopted by Keith Daly, even though she'd never moved to Queensland with her mum and her stepfather and her subsequent husband. Yeah, I, I can't recall exactly what her position was, but it wasn't relevant to her position in the sense that she was in the will anyway. She seemed to have the continuing relationship with her biological father. She was named as the executrix and she was named as the main beneficiary. So she was entitled uh, under the will and she didn't have to prove that she was a a natural child or an adopted child or whatever. So uh, 
it didn't matter so much with respect to Dawn. It only mattered in respect of a brother. For him to make a claim under the, the, yes. the provisions of, of being a child. So yes. tell me, Jared Basher, how common is adoption among blended families? Does it happen in this day and age? We're talking here about uh, kids who were born in the late 50s and early 60s. And, and of course, there were thousands and thousands of adoptions every year back then. But adoptions among blended families, are they still taking place in this yes. way? Yes, there are adoptions taking place all the time. We have legislation in New South Wales, the Adoption Act of uh, the year 2000. Also in our New South Wales Supreme Court, there is a special court list that deals with adoptions only, the adoptions list. So there are many adoptions and it's not only blended families, it's, you know, obviously where children are young and parents are not capable of caring for them for whatever reason. It's not uncommon for decisions to be made in the best interest of the child for the child to be adopted by someone else. So adoptions are taking place and adoptions indeed in the context of divorces and repartnering. In that kind of context, what sorts of issues do you see as a wills and estate lawyer around blended families? With blended families, it's a balancing act in the end by the willmaker, balance the rights of, uh, for example, the children from a prior relationship against the children from the existing relationship. And he also has to balance the rights of the children from a prior relationship against the spouse of, of the existing relationship. And that's quite a difficult balancing act. Now, moving on to another recent case involving a will, there was a matter of Carl John Curtis, and that focuses on the emergency COVID measures which allowed for the remote signing and witnessing of documents. Now, these are remote signing and witnessing requirements that were introduced during the COVID lockdown. And this was because people feared for their lives. There was, there was a huge rush to create and update wills in a safe way. What are these uh, COVID emergency protocols? Well, obviously, the long historical way wills were executed with lawyers was in the lawyer's office. Most of the times with uh, the lawyer as one witness and another witness and the will maker, and they'd all see each other sign and uh, witness, and they'd all do it at the same time. Those formalities stem from the United Kingdom in the early 1800s and there have been the formalities for such a long period of time and they've been followed for such a long period of time. With COVID, people obviously were restricted in where they could travel, moving out of the home during periods of lockdown. If wills needed to be signed, uh, you know, there they couldn't be that physical presence. So these emergency COVID remote Will execution procedures were introduced in all states, in not only Victoria, but New South Wales and I believe the other states and territories as well, so that uh, people could have their wills executed remotely and still have a valid binding will that would have legal operation on their death. So everybody would jump onto a Teams meeting or a Zoom meeting and there'd be some sort of protocols where everybody signs the document simultaneously. Yeah. Uh, with, uh, you know, in the Victorian case, they used uh, the DocuSign program, the electronic signing program. We've just had a very interesting recent decision involving the will of Carl John Curtis. He left a will dated the 7th of June 2021 and then he dies on 21st of June 2021. How had the requirements of the Victorian COVID-19 Omnibus Emergency Measures Act 2020 been complied or not complied with in his case? 
basically what went wrong was that uh, the witnesses and the will maker didn't see each other sign on the computer using the document signing method. Therefore, because they didn't sign in, in sight or effectively what's traditionally known as the presence of each other, they didn't see the actual signing. The court found that the will was not validly signed under the COVID measures. In other words, they weren't looking at each other on the Zoom or Teams meeting or whatever and looking at each other sign, physically sign with a pen or... Um, uh, well, with the DocuSign program, yes. With the DocuSign program, that digital kind of yeah. uh, signature, but watching them actually do that on the screen. Yeah, so they clearly got to observe the Willbaker sitting in front of his computer and fixing his signature by the DocuSign program. The protocol wasn't followed, the rules weren't followed. What did the court find? Was this still a valid will? Yes, the court had to rely on another power that it has to uh, say that, well, even though the will wasn't signed in accordance with the required formalities for signing and witnessing wills, they would still admit that will to probate because it represented the clear testamentary intentions of the willmaker. But you want to avoid that uh, at all times, that sort of second step, because it's additional cost and complication for the estate. And I think the court even went as far as to say video recording the whole will signing process, keeping a record of, of that recording, will help in these situations where there hasn't been strict compliance. So the court has suggested that's a prudent thing to do in any event, keep a video recording on the file of the actual remote will execution being done. All the rules weren't followed, but nevertheless, it's still a, a valid will. Do you reckon there are lots of other wills out there which were made in the, the, the desperate rush to create wills and update wills in the first year or two years of the pandemic do you think there could be a lot of potential minds out there where similar sorts of scenarios where the protocols weren't followed? Yeah, I think that's a fair assumption. Obviously, we'll only know once people start passing away and their, their wills are submitted for probate. But certainly in our practice, we uh, try and get the will makers to re-sign in person after the lockdown, where at all possible, provided they're mobile and they can come into the office just to overcome any complications with uh, that remote will execution process. These procedures are designed to always make sure that we're on the lookout for those who might take advantage of, of others, of testators, you know, elder yes. financial abuse. And, and with remote signing and witnessing, mm. the witness might have no idea who's behind the camera or in the next yes. room holding the hand, literally mm. or figuratively, of the, the testator. Mm. So, so it's really important that we have the right precautions and checks uh, in place. That's right. It's important to try and prevent as far as possible issues such as undue influence and fraud and coercion to get people to sign documents. So signing remotely or execution remotely, we always ask the willmaker to uh, confirm that there's nobody else in the room with them. Sometimes they need somebody to help them with the technology and we, we understand that, but uh, we're, we're quite uh, alive to the various issues that might arise. These provisions which allow for remote witnessing, they're on the books. They haven't been rolled back now that in many ways the pandemic has passed. Does that mean that remote witnessing of documents, and especially of wills, is one of the permanent shifts in the landscape that's the legacy of the COVID pandemic? I mean, this is the new normal, right? We're all on Teams, we're all on Zooms, we're all docu-signing. Yes, look, potentially that could be the case. There's still a philosophical debate about whether these changes should be permanent 
permanent or whether we should just revert back to the in-person signing in all circumstances. But uh, look, I certainly think that with elderly will makers who might have great difficulty travelling to a lawyer's office or because of distance there might be great difficulty in the lawyer travelling to the home with a second witness, I think there's some benefit in, in having them here to stay, but I don't think it should be for everybody, an able-bodied young person who can travel quite easily. I think the safest course is obviously in-person signing, but if you're going to do it remotely and these provisions still remain, then you've just got to make sure you follow the procedure 100% correctly. 100% correctly. Good advice there from uh, Jared Basher, wills and estates expert or accredited specialist with Bartia Perry. Thank you. Thank you for speaking to The Law Report. Thank you. Don't forget, we are available anytime via the wonderful ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. A big thank you to technical producer this week, Brendan O'Neill, and to producer Christina Kukolia. I'm Damien Carrick. Talk to you next time with more law.